Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara Ongwele, Associate Director at the Madison Center, and today joining me is Dr. Abraham Goldberg. Hi, Abe. It is great to be here today. We are also joined today by JMU School of Media, Arts, and Design Assistant Professor Ryan Alessi. He got hooked on political journalism, working uh, for a national wire out of Washington, D.C. in the 2000 election. From there, he went on uh, to serve as a reporter at the Lexington Herald, chasing down candidates and officials and digging through their records. He also had a television show in, in Kentucky and also did some digital news reporting. And now he is an amazing teacher at JMU, very popular among the students and in the community. He's also a co-founder of the the Citizen Takes on Harrisonburg, which is a hyper-local uh, journalism media outlet. Thanks for being with us today, Ryan. Wow, thanks for that intro, Kara. <laughs> I forgot one other title. He is also a faculty fellow at the Madison Center for Civic Engagement. Of which I am very proud of that title. Uh, and actually, this is uh, all that media that I have done. This is my podcast debut. Wow, really? You've yes, never done a podcast I have before? never been a guest on a podcast before. I've been a radio station. I've done an analysis on a radio station many times, but I've never done an actual podcast. What I'm hearing you say then is that we're special here at the Madison Center? Super special. Okay. I wonder if you could start us off. Um, we are in an election year. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> You've done a lot of election coverage. Um, but we also are living in a different age where, and you've lived across different sort of media scapes, right? Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the best strategies for people who consume the news to approach political news this season and especially in election coverage. How can we separate the wheat from the chaff? I mean, that has been the biggest question that I think we've had to adjust to since news has changed, because no longer are we getting news in a newspaper where we can easily see the difference between the news pages and the opinion section, or getting news from uh, one of three broadcast stations. Now with news being channeled at us from all different ways and receiving it through social media, uh, it's tough to tell the difference between news and opinion unless you're looking for it. And that's the first thing. That's the first challenge is what kind of content are you actually getting? And so um, so I, I've, I've been working with my students to try and look at, okay, are there labels on the content that you get? If there aren't labels, can you go up to the URL and find out if there's the word opinion uh, which often indicates that it's in the opinion section of a website embedded into that URL. Those are some of the tricks that you can use to figure out, is this somebody's opinion and argument that they're backing up, or is this verified, factual, reported information? Uh, and then once that's determined, going to that source, that original, that original news organization that produced it, and, and doing a little sleuthing. Unfortunately, we, we've got to be kind of reporters ourselves these days and kind of tracking back, are those news organizations reporting uh, the, the facts? Are they, are they getting all the perspectives? And for that, we kind of have to shop around. And so I always encourage everybody to read as many things as possible. And, and shop around for, for, for those uh, different news organizations uh, reporting on, on a development. 
Are there some organizations that you suggest as being more reliable for political news coverage than others? Yeah, I, I always suggest uh, a range of them. Uh, the New York Times is a, is a, is a go-to. They have reporters uh, all across the country following all of the candidates. Um, they have a huge uh, national bureau in, in Washington. Um, the Washington Post is another. The Hill uh, is 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 another source. Politico, the Wall Street Journal, their their reporters. Um, so those are five that I always check right away. In our democracy, Ryan, it seems to me that we rely on information to be informed and effective citizens and participants. Yeah. Has the job become that much harder? For being citizens or being reporters? For being citizens, right? I, I mean, I'm yeah. thinking about, uh, it's daunting what you just described. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, it is. There is more responsibility, especially when we're receiving news. But I also think there's an opportunity for us to be way more engaged in the process than, than we were before as, a, as opposed to you know, passive receivers of news. Now we have an opportunity uh, with all this information at our fingertips uh, if we know how to harness this information and uh, searching, going to fact-checking sites like Snopes, uh, PolitiFact, um, factcheck.org, going to those sites and saying, boy, is the thing that I thought is too crazy to be true, is that actually true? And, and looking at that, it allows us to kind of engage in a way where we're evaluating, okay, which news organizations are doing the best job of vetting the facts and doing that reporting? Uh, who, who, which politicians are saying things that aren't true where uh, they get a rating on PolitiFact of pants on fire? And so should I be skeptical when I hear that, that, that political official speak uh, that maybe they don't have all their facts if they have a record of, of pants on fire? So, Ryan, you, you talked about being skeptical and consuming news and, and asking sort of those internal questions of does this does this seem true? Does this seem real? And I know that you do not just classes with students, but you're also doing some community workshops on this. D do you feel like the people that you interact with on these topics are asking those kinds of questions internally as they're consuming news? That That's a great question. And actually, um, what I've kind of gathered uh, from both students and, uh, you know, adults as old as, as, as 85, I had a workshop where several people were in their 80s. All of them are asking, hey, I, I think I need to know something. My spidey sense is tingling that, 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 that I'm not always getting all the facts or not everything that I read or that's being sent my way is, is fully true. But I don't know how then to kind of suss out what actually is fact from what's opinion or what's fiction. And so, um, you know, those workshops and the classes are really helpful for kind of creating a toolkit about, you know, okay, what do you do when you're not quite sure or when one news organization is reporting something that nobody else is that sounds kind of hinky? How, what do I do with that? How do I check that out? And so I think a lot of people are asking the right questions of how, how do I take that next step and be that engaged citizen to vet and verify 
what information I'm getting. So that that, that I think is the, that that I think is the good news that that there's this awareness that not all information is being created equally and truthfully. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about sort of the inequalities that are created by this system, though, because people who might come to your workshop or be able to take your class, they're able to get the tools they need, mm -hmm. right? But what about the vast majority out in society who are primarily getting their news media from their social media feeds, right? And might not click through the articles, right? We know a lot of people will see something like something, but then move on and not actually read the full story, right? Or share something that is misinformation, whether purposely or not, right? And it helps to spread. Um, so I wonder if there are sort of large scale ways to change <laughs> or positively impact um, uh the large swath of people who aren't able to, to figure, you know, to, to, or who, large swath of people who simply don't even have time really to right. read the news or to have access to amazing resources, um, you know, at a university or, or through our libraries, um, to, to have information literacy. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, that's another million dollar question where my hope is that, uh, the people who do take classes in college or go to workshops at their local libraries or, or, you know, think about this thing or listen to this podcast, then take those tools. And when they see something shared on social media and they go through and debunk that or find out, hey, this isn't actually coming from a legitimate news source or, hey, that that video clip of this candidate saying this line was completely taken out of context, that they share that on their social media and say, actually, here's here's what really happened. And this isn't necessarily the full truth um, because we all can be media producers now. And that is, a, that is a healthy part of this discussion when somebody can say, you know what, that information that's coming at us is not complete. It doesn't have the full context. It's not factual. And, and, and jump into the conversation that way. But in terms of being well-equipped, more people being well-equipped to deal with, with the changes in media, um, I personally believe that that needs to be baked into the education system as early as elementary school. And media literacy is such an important part of navigating the 21st century. Information is, is, is vital to everything that we do. And we are now consuming information in ways that people 100 years ago never thought possible. We have at our fingertips more information than ever possible. So why would we not take this opportunity to educate our citizenry from the very early stages about how to deal with that? And I'm so glad that the, the Madison Center is doing so much here at, at, you know, at the college level, but this is way too late for students to get it for the first time. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. Can I do the pen drop? Pen no, but, it, but, but it's, I mean, we think about that with a lot of our work, right? As, as the Madison Center is working with students, faculty, administrators, community partners, national organizations about strengthening democracy, creating a more inclusive democracy, and promoting civic engagement, um, are we in this deficit model, right? Are, are, are people coming to us where some of it is perhaps 
too late and maybe maybe higher ed does have uh, certainly has a role a civic mission if you will to strengthen democracy but higher ed isn't the only sector the only set of institutions that have a responsibility in this um, where should this come from um, where where I've got a nine and a, a seven-year-old where should they be developing these skills and how can I as a father support that I think everybody should be investing in trying to to address it from their perspective I think I think from the home you know the more it's talked about you know around the 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 kitchen table about hey here's what's what's in the news uh, just talking about the the news in general uh, you know it, it it should be baked into the education system because what's happening around us every day relates to every single subject students are already studying, whether it's social studies, math, science, English. Uh, there are ways to tie in the, 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 you know, the basic information that they're learning anyway to what's happening in the news and do a two for one. Well, here's how you understand the news and here's, here's how we get information. And you can't just Google everything when you need uh, to, an answer to something because not all information is created equally. And you know, we have the advantage where, I, I hate to break it to you all, but we're, we're kind of old now. Uh, and we, got the, we had the opportunity to grow up where we saw this transition from analog information to digital information where suddenly all, all of this, that we had to go to the library and get those index cards and go find the books and the periodicals. Now it's just type in a, you know, a question into Google and that information comes. We've had the advantage of seeing how this has evolved. And the younger people who are coming up have been able to, to just ask their question into this internet thing that they haven't had the advantage of knowing how that's evolved and then get the answer. So there's a lot that, that they don't even have the opportunity to understand how it works because they're just exposed to it right away. So I, I just think that it, it has to it has to be kind of fully ingrained into all of these conversations. Calling us old, I would actually say is fake news. <laughs> at disinformation. At, D disin at dis disinformation. <laughs> uh, we were my, in Teen Vogue yesterday. <laughs> we're not old. <laughs> that's 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 awesome. That is awesome. So we're in presidential election year, um, there was a lot of discussion after 2016 because so much of the reporting around that election was about predicting what the outcome would be. And I wonder, looking back on the 2016 election, what should the media have learned from the coverage of the elections? Um, and how do those lessons apply in this year? Well, I, I, I hope the media has learned that uh, punditry and predictions and polling should come with disclaimers uh, and that, that those those three P's uh, should not be taken as fact because there's no way to make a prediction factual. Uh, and you can just search through and search through uh, Trump 
win 2020 or Sanders win in 2020 and you get headlines that say Sanders cannot win in 2020 and Sanders will win in 2020 and, and Trump can't win in 2020 and, and Trump will win in, in, in 2020. So to some extent, they're still the media is still doing the, the, the prediction thing, but I don't think it's it's kind of baked into the narrative uh, of this election the way it was, um, in part because there's really no inevit inevitability in the Democratic primary at this point. It's a it's a you know uh, a, a muddled, confusing primary. Um, so that's one thing. I think looking deeper at what the candidates are doing and the tactics that they're using and and taking that seriously, that it's not just a matter of people will ultimately vote the way the narrative seems to be going, uh, and that what candidates actually do to campaign and reach voters matters. Um, and, and the other thing that I, that I hope that the media has, has taken away is that, fr from 2016, is that what the candidate says matters, and that those those pundits and those those journalists who are kind of reporting saying uh, maybe this one particular candidate is going to govern differently than how he or she was was campaigning. Um, no, some sometimes the campaign exposes what that candidate actually will do when they're in office and, and, and look into that more. I'm thinking about the business model yeah. of, of the media, right? Attracting eyeballs, getting attention. Doesn't the punditry, the, the polls, the predictions support that business model? I, I don't think so. I think it more fills time. And uh, the 24-7 news networks being able to do uh, cheap yet entertaining um, information more fills time than draws eyeballs in. I think if news organizations spent a lot of time digging into things, uh, people would still watch it. Uh, it still requires compelling storytelling, which is tough. And uh, that it's it's very you know it takes a lot of resources and it takes a lot of smarts to be a reporter and a, and a journalist who can tell a compelling important story that makes people want to take notice. But when that happens, people people do watch. But it's much easier to and it's much cheaper for news organizations to spend a lot of time having people in those little boxes, heads in boxes, yelling at each other. Pardon the interruption style. Um, there's a reason that, that cable news networks, uh, news networks, are now mimicking formats of ESPN. Um, and it's because it's, it, it, it's cheap and it kind of reinforces the horse race, games, winning, losing. And I think that kind of cheapens the process. So you're going to be doing a study away to both the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Conventions with students and giving them on the <laughs> on the job training, <laughs> if you will. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, about that study away um, and also maybe talk a little bit about the conventions themselves, um, how they've evolved and how coverage of the conventions has evolved. I think one thing that we've seen a dramatic change in is how issues are covered at the conventions and how it has become so much more a coronation process rather than actually thinking through the issues that matter for people's lives in this country. 
Yeah, the conventions are. I'm. This is going to be so much fun. Uh, Ten students will be going, and they'll be serving as as reporters. They will be uh, chasing down senators in the hallways of these convention halls in Milwaukee for the Democrats, and uh, in Charlotte for the Republicans. And they'll be covering covering both, uh, and they will be covering stories beyond the speeches. Um, we, when when I think of conventions, I think of the first the convention hall and all the delegates from around the country with their uh, flamboyant hats and signs and a rally atmosphere as speakers come on and off the stage. Uh, but but there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that that we don't see on primetime television when the the biggest names speak. They have speakers taking the stage in the afternoon about specific issues that are relevant to each party's platform from from people across the country. Some future stars, uh, future political stars, some people who have been affected by policies. Um, They have workshops and forums outside the convention hall that other outside groups put on that allow for experts to speak in front of either the party faithful or the media and, and learn more about those 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 issues that, uh, that sometimes, as you said in your question, sometimes they don't make it into the speeches themselves, but they're still there and it still helps in our understanding of the directions the parties want to take the country. And so um, I am so hopeful that, that the students will get a chance, the student journalists who are going will get a chance to report on those aspects and bring that back for, for audiences here in Virginia where their work will be shared uh, through VCU has generously allowed our students to put out their stories on their Capital News Service wire and share, uh, share it with 116 news organizations across Virginia um, to give those you know, small towns, medium-sized towns across the Commonwealth a chance to kind of go behind the scenes with the Virginia delegates. So I am, I am so excited for this. Media plays a really important role in the civic life of our communities. And one of the trends we've seen over the last couple of decades now is the decline in local news media. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about news deserts and what you're doing with the Citizen Takes on Harrisonburg to to draw people back into civic life here locally and and maybe a little bit about you know how it relates to this broader movement for hyperlocal journalism. I am really worried about our ability as a country to have a shared set of facts because a lot of the information that we're not getting um, had previously come through local papers. And and there was information that, that we would get through the Associated Press. I mean, I, you all grew up reading newspapers, right? I mean, I, you know, it wouldn't, it wasn't just the, what was happening in the community, but there would be stories that everybody would be reading in their local paper that the Associated Press would run, that uh, that we'd understand what's happening in Washington, right? And 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 now with those with those papers closing, uh, they're losing, you know, we're we're losing that connection, but we're also losing really important reporting from each of those communities, city council. Uh, and I, I, I really wish there was um, the emphasis on local government coverage the way that it seems like local sports coverage always finds a way to survive. Local sports coverage is kind of like the cockroaches of, 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 of news where it will always find a way to get out there, right? It'll always find a way to survive the apocalypse. Um, 
And local local news, I, I I feel like there's still there's not that value on hey what's happening down the street at City Hall, that affects the roads we drive on in our community, the the schools. How does it change governance when people aren't aware of those types of things? In many ways, the University of Illinois had a great study about how communities that lost their local paper pay five to twenty percent more on their interest rates on bonds when they do public construction projects because there's no accountability or there's less accountability that, uh, that, that local officials know that some, nobody's looking over their shoulder about what they're doing and what deals they're getting into and how the process works for selling bonds. Uh, what you're saying is actually haunting, right? When we think about a democracy without accountability from a citizenry, it, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's my nightmare. It's my nightmare that a democracy is, is, is being run where people who are supposed to be working for us as the citizens aren't, aren't, are not accountable or not having any oversight uh, by the reporters and the journalists who, you know, as, as uh, often known as the fourth estate, uh, that fourth branch to kind of vet what's happening. And if we don't know what's happening, we can't make changes in the next election and hire somebody to do a better job than the, than the people who are, who are currently in charge. So it, it is my nightmare of just not knowing. And reporters are trained to use the Freedom of Information Act to ask for documents, public emails, emails that are exchanged between officials on the, on, on the public server, that's all available through the open records request. And having reporters who are trained to get that information, then sift through it and find out what the, what the most important pieces are or the, the, the pieces that people must know about that's affecting their lives, that is a trained skill. And not having that on the local level or not uh, uh, fully paying for that skill that utility of understanding the, the information that's important to local government governance, that is affecting us every day in ways that I, that I don't even fully understand, but it scares the heck out of me. We have a question that we ask all of our guests. Okay. What would you do to strengthen democracy? I'm trying to figure out which one of the 12 and a half things that are going through my mind that I would I would I would want to do first. And I'm I, I can I'm you I'm can stuck share between all two. And a half things. I'm stuck between two. <laughs> Let me I'll just do two cuz cuz otherwise this podcast will turn into a 24-hour uh, podcast. Uh, the 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 two that I would would push for were, would actually be journalism classes in elementary school. Because it's not, to, to, to me, I think the most helpful part of media literacy is getting the experience of actually being part of the media and thinking critically, distilling information and, 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 and being able to clearly communicate that will serve all citizens really well. And doing that from an early age, I think is, is a wonderful way to help students uh, and equip them for studying for reading news, for being consumers of news and information, uh, and for being engaged citizens. Secondly, I would love to figure out a sustainable funding model for local news. Um, and there are a lot of different ideas being 
kicked around, all of which have pros and cons, and I'm not sure what the right one is, but I've been intrigued by the proposals to have special taxing districts where, uh, you know, there would be there would be a separate um, separate board that would oversee this. But if we think about information and oversight of, of, of people in, in government as a utility, then we should be paying. It shouldn't be just the people who, who out of the goodness of their heart or out of civic responsibility feel that they need to pay. Um, should that information be free? Ideally, yes, free and available. But it's, I, I, I don't think that you can ask people to develop and perfect the skills and the responsibility necessary to be journalists without, without paying for that. Um, so, you know, that, that's one thing that I've wrestled with with a long time is what, what's, the, what's the funding model to save local news? Somebody's going to think of something ingenious to, to save local news. I hope it's a JMU student. Um, that would be awesome if it were, and I'm rooting for that to happen. So all of you JMU students out there, this is the way you can maybe find to save the universe. <laughs> Ryan Alessi, Assistant Professor at the School of Media Arts and Design, thank you for joining us today on Democracy Matters. Thanks for helping me get to my first podcast. I've had a good time. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu civic. Until next time.